Hey, profs. Welcome on in. My name's Rob Lightfoot, proud two-time alum of Rick Edelman College of Communication, class of 2000-2001. This is Beyond the Brown and Gold. I'm Jessica Kennedy. I'm the co-host here, also a two-time proud Rowan alum, class of 2008 from the Rick Edelman College of Communication and Creative Arts, and 2015 from the College of Education. Thanks so much for joining us today. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM presents Beyond the Brown and Gold, a show that highlights the lives and memories of Glassboro State and Rowan University alumni. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Lightfoot and Jessica Kennedy. Rob, we have a very special guest on today's show with a, a unique story, nothing like any of the alumni stories we've heard before. I think that's that's absolutely apropos to say. Yes, yeah, that's safe to say. So we had um, alum Jason Denon, 98 graduate with a BS in business administration. And while that is wonderful, his experience at <laughs> Rowan, <laughs> why are you laughing at me? No, because it, well, it, it was wonderful. It is wonderful. I know, but it deals with nothing of his story. Yeah, not it really doesn't have to do too much with what we talked to Jason about. Um, Jason is an author. He uh, authored the book Eight Days Till Sunrise, and it's about a, a traumatic experience that yeah. he had adventuring. No, and I got to say that you have to see both of our faces, really. And if this were a visual medium, we're both there. Like, there was a stretch there. We didn't say a word. No, because I was just en- so engaged because, in the story. Yeah, because the, the, his, he, the accident that he had, mm-hmm. and then the recovery, and then just hearing how motivated he stayed during that piece, it was wild. So it's a, it, I think it's a, it's a great listen. It is a great listen. I Motivating, was, I would say, as well. Yeah, I feel like um, I kind of just want to go there and, like, meet with him. You know what I mean? Like I, I, this, this was a virtual interview for us. It's always great to have alums in studio, but sometimes they're coming from, he's coming to us all the way from Colorado, which yeah. you'll hear as soon as we jump into the recording, but it is, you know, you just kind of want to meet him because you feel like there's, you know, something about him that's really inspiring. And it's more than just his physical recovery. So it's his physical and the mental recovery that he experienced. So absolutely. It's a great listen. So Jason, off air, before we started the actual recording, we talked a lot about um, where you're coming to us from today. So tell us where you're coming to us from and also what the state flower is because I oh, did. You're gonna I did <laughs> this is great. I did no, quiz, I love this. this I did is quiz great him this is um, a great open. to check his levels to see how we could hear him. And he does know the state flower, which I think is great. So and honestly, why, he could lie and tell us this. Yeah, we're going to we, have to Google fact check yeah, this afterwards. Right. Jason, where are you coming in from? Today I'm in Denver, so I'm in my office. But I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is about about 25 miles away from from uh, downtown Denver, and uh, yeah, Columbine is the state flower, and uh, you you can double check that I'm right about that. Take us back to your time before you got to Rowan. Um, take us back to your pre-Colorado days. Where did you grow up, and how did you find your way to Rowan University? Sure. So uh, I grew up in Monroe. If and of course for our Jersey folks, ADA on the Turnpike, because there's more than one Monroe, of course about 40 miles from New York City. Grew up there, lived my pretty much my whole life there um, up until coming to Rowan. Uh, my parents are actually both graduates of Rowan as well. I think they're class of 69. So yeah, back when that was a uh, mostly a school of education, they're both teachers. They're retired now. So yeah, they went there. So that's how I knew about, you know, Glassboro it was Glassboro State then. Became Rowan, I guess, two years before I got there. So uh, yeah, played a little football there. But uh, yeah, grew up in Monroe and came down to, to South Jersey for uh, college. So yeah, first first knew about it from through my parents and all their stories. And with having two parents that were educators, was there 
any inkling that you wanted to get into education? No, they they told me that uh, I shouldn't go into education. Not that they didn't love being teachers, but they but they did say they said yeah maybe education's not like they go in the business world. Yeah, they 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 were they didn't uh, necessarily push me towards education. They did like I, that I went to, to Rowan, though. Yeah. So what did they how did you know of Rowan? Did they do? Did you visit a lot? Did you just hear through stories or how there's that sweet mix of, you know, kind of wanting to go where your parents go and kind of not wanting to go where your parents went? So what what did that look like for you? My parents, I don't ever remember going coming to the campus before actually doing the campus tour. But, you know, you would get the stories of this is where we met. This is, you know, sophomore year, we're at this dorm. And, and that's this is how our relationship developed. And they got married their senior year. So um, so I heard the stories um, about the college. But yeah, I hadn't been down there. They always said nice things about it. Nice campus. You know, they loved their four years that they stayed there. Um, so yeah, it was always positive information about Rowan, but yeah, we hadn't, hadn't gone back there for a football game or anything. I think my parents were pretty excited though, when they brought me on the campus tour and they got to see it for the first time in a long time. And we, you know, we went to a football game and, and, uh, and they kind of followed the sports from afar, although this before, you know, internet age. So it was a little harder to follow it. Now it's a lot easier to follow the football games. I'll just pop onto the website and see how those guys are doing. And the baseball team, I follow quite a bit. And so when you were here, you said you played football. What position? Well, play would be, I was more like practice squad. I did play, I, I was the best tackling dummy on the, uh, so I did carry the ball. I played running back. Um, but yeah, I played one year of football and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And we were, we were pretty good back then. We were like the Florida state of division three. You were under we're, coach Keeler. Keeler was, uh, was the man. He, uh, I can't remember. I think it was his first year that he was the head coach because they were coming off a um, the Division Three championship stag bowl uh, the year before I got there. Uh, yeah. We went six and three when I was there. And then in that six year period, one year before and one year after I was there, that was four title games, I believe. I went down yeah. to Roanoke, Virginia and saw the, the stag bowl, I think twice, maybe, maybe three times. So let's switch to the scholastic side then. So what did we study while we're here in Rowan? Business. Okay, business. And with the yep. hope of doing what? Did you have something in mind that you wanted to sort of reach out to and start career-wise? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't have a specific thing that I really wanted to get into. I said, yeah, business degree, you, you're, you know, open to a lot of different things. So, um, you know, that's what I chose. But yeah, I didn't have a specific job where I was like, this is what I need to do. So yeah, going in, I just decided to major in business. What kinds of things were you involved in here on campus? Sure, I was involved in Greek life. Uh, the Newman Center, religious, um, you know, kind of youth group. Those are the two main things I, I, I was uh, I was involved in. So any yeah. professors or anything that were when you were here that kind of made an impact in your college of business experience or any of your other kind of experiences on campus, any mentors that really helped you along your college journey? Yeah, um, I would say uh, I would say it, the the professors I remember the most, Dr. Farnelli in the uh, in the science department, he was there. I remember my parents said, oh, we remember Dr. Farnelli from when we were there, because I think that oh. was probably the tail end of his teaching career. Dr. Goodfellow, he was in the it was an American studies class. I don't remember the exact name of the uh, class, but it just gave you awareness of society and how things, you know, in the world were socially, which I thought gave me a good exposure to things that maybe I wasn't exposed to as much. So those two professors, I always remember. But yeah, I mean, the, the business professors were great too, but but those two just stick out in my mind right off the top of my head. So now you take this diverse experience you have, and then what's sort of next for you post-Rowan? Yeah. So post-Rowan, um, 
I worked in New, Jer New Jersey for three years, financial services, so 401k plans, retirement things in terms of work. And uh, I, I kind of got, got into triathlon, competed in triathlon quite a bit in those uh, early years out of college. Were you a runner and a biker and everything while you were playing football? How does, how does one go from not triathloning to triathloning? Yeah, I don't know. You just jump in the deep end and figure it out. But uh, okay. no, it, it, it started with with running. Um, so it's, it's different, certainly from football, because you're sprinting in that sport. And then I just decided one day I was like, well, let me do a little bit of long, long distance running or, or longer distance running. And I started doing that. And I said, oh, I kind of like that. And I kind of was like, well, getting out of college, I need to figure out something else besides work to do for for fun or a challenge. And uh, then I signed up, did the Philadelphia Marathon. November after graduating, I was sitting in my apartment in college and I see the Ironman triathlon, Hawaii Ironman triathlon come on TV on NBC, like they air it every year. And I'm sitting there. I'm just like, well, I need to find something to do after graduation. I see this. I've seen, I watched it before. I'm like, I wonder if I could do that. So I said, well, the first step was figure out how to run. So I was like, if I can't do a marathon, I can't do the rest of that. So I did the marathon. And I said, okay, time to buy a bike. And then I'll figure out how, I, I kind of knew how to swim, but not really the right way. And then I kind of took some lessons on how to swim the correct way and then started riding a, a triathlon bike outside. And I was like, signed up for a triathlon, did a high, half Ironman triathlon. And then the next year I was like, well, you know, why don't I try to do the full uh, Ironman triathlon? So the next year I signed up and second year after graduating, I did the uh, Ironman triathlon up in um, Lake Placid, New York. So um yeah, it was, it was just kind of a challenge to see if I could do it, you know? We are wired differently, Jason, because I watched a lot <laughs> of silly stuff on television, yeah. right? And if I tried any of that stuff, I'd be split in half. Yeah, well, you run. I do run. I yeah. do run, but um, I don't have... My friends always want to get me to do a Tough mutter. Yeah. And I told them, I was like, look, I have no interest in getting dirty, getting wet, any of that stuff. I just want to run. <laughs> I you know, want to stay on land. I'm just made for land. You're made for land. I am, that's right. I feel am. like really... When you put your feet on the ground, there's you just feel very it. grounded. But there is, uh, and Jason, you kind of share it. Like there's a runner's high that comes with it, right? You get sort of a, I yeah. don't know if you still do, but people don't understand the runner's high. But I get the runner's high. And then there is something like the mental and physical, um, the, the balance and the, or the dichotomy and the fight between the two of those that comes with a long distance run. Actually, my I think my mental state would fail and my physical state <laughs> would, would fail if I had well, to do We need that. one to not fail. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens with I distance I am kind of hard-headed, so maybe I could do it, yeah, but I don't well, know. Well, it's trying to convince your left knee, like, I know you're hurting right now, but we still have another mile left. So were you always kind of like adventurous in your you know, endeavors outside of uh, work and and academia? I would say that was kind of the, I had backpacked in like Boy Scouts and things like that before in the outdoors, but I would say that was kind of the first step to be non-traditional sports, let's say, out of the team environment and just kind of choosing something on your own and, and figuring out how to do it. You know, there was no, back then, I mean, now there's coaches and things like that. Back then it was kind of, triathlon started a bunch of years before I started, but there were, it, you kind of had to figure it out yourself. There was no guiding force. I didn't know anybody else who ran, no one, not anybody else who really swam as an adult. So you kind of just had to figure it out. You just got a book and said, all right, let's, let's figure out how you train, how you, how you swim, how you, you know, efficiently run and get in aerodynamic positions and things like that. So yeah, it was definitely kind of just taking on my own and figuring it out. And like I say, the first time I ever saw another triathlete was the first uh, race I ever did. So I was like, oh, these are what those people look like. So uh, I don't know. just kind of just figured it out. 
You're like, if they can do it, I can do it. And then, so what? What do you move to next? Because it sounds like to me, if I'm going to self, I'm going to diagnose a little bit. Let me, <laughs> let me put my doctor. Lightfoot, let me put my doctor's hat on. Oh wait, doctors don't wear hats. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you're you're adventurous type here, and that I know that's going out on a limb, right? Uh, but it sounds like you got a little addictive personality here. That you got to you're chasing these little highs here. Am I am I am I penning this too too too? Uh, you said a little addictive personality. I'd say it's probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there you go. See, look, all those years of doctor school paid off. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about like sort of how you started to pursue some of these other adventures that you found. Sure. So I worked for, for about three years in New Jersey. And then I said, you know, I'm getting in more into the outdoor stuff. I started reading books. Someone actually, um, oh, oh, a friend of mine who also went to Rowan gave me a book, uh, Into Thin Air. So it's about uh, a, a disaster in 96 on, on Everest or Chumalunga, if you wanted to say by the uh, Nepalese na- name. And I read that, and oddly enough, lots of people pass away in the book, but why that would interest me in rock climbing or mountain climbing is is interesting. But I kind of read this, and I start reading other books and other books, and, and obviously New Jersey is not really a hotbed for uh, mountain climbing. I, I, I was doing triathlon. I see Boulder, Colorado is the hotbed of triathlon. All the triathletes, all the, the pros go and train there. So I see that in my magazines. I was like, oh, wait, but Boulder, Colorado also has some of the best rock climbing in the world right outside your doorstep. I'm like, oh man, that sounds like a place to be. So uh, after reading all these mountain climbing books, I'm like, well, you know what? Why don't I try Colorado? Seems like my speed. Um, and I should try it now or back then before you get too far into a career and things like that. I was like, let's do it now. If I like it, I'll stay. If I don't, then I could always move back. But I figured let's let's try it now and see see if I'll like it. So quit my job, move out to Colorado. I don't know anybody. They advise um, that, by the way. Professionals <laughs> really advise that. Before you have another job, they just always quit and career advice is always just quit. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, the company I worked for didn't have an office in Colorado, so there was no choice there. So I said, but you know what? I'm just quit, go, and see what happens. And um, so move out here. So I already kind of read about climbing, and, and slightly before I moved out of the area. So I took a like a ten thousand mile road trip around the country. So I said, I might as well see the rest of the country before. You know, because how often do you get large times of blocks of time off from work? So since I already quit my job, might as well take advantage of that. So first went out all the way to Seattle and uh, did a two-week climbing course in the Cascades into Canada. Um, and I, I figured I might as well learn to climb. Might as well do it on a two-week or 13-day course. Uh, figure out a glacier travel, figure out how to rock climb, or at least get the introduction to it. So immerse myself in that, travel around the rest of the country come back to New Jersey, go to one of my friend's weddings that I'm in. After that's over, move out to Colorado. Wait, so, were your parents uh, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You had a stable job, and now you're going across the country to learn how to climb glaciers? What are you doing? What was that like? Yeah, they, they were, they were kind of like, whose kid are you? And uh, where did you get these, you know, sort of uh, – genes from uh as far as just getting up and quitting and doing something else because it wasn't the standard for my family at least um so yeah they were i i mean i told them a while before i was like i'm gonna move out to colorado i think at first they were just like e- yeah sure and then i was just like all right just letting you know quitting the job in in, in uh, a month or two and um i'm going out there so so yeah they were a bit nervous just because you know it's kind of far off from anyone else in the family and uh, you know i'm just brand new place and Climbing maybe is not the safest activity in the world that you're going to take oh, up. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. 
so yeah, they were they were you know a little bit concerned, but you know I've done other things since then that probably made them more concerned. And so then you head out west, uh-huh. and you take up another addictive, uh, <laughs> I guess, physical activity or or hobby. I guess we should say. You don't have to keep referring to it as addictive. Well, no, because <laughs> it feels triggering to me. Well, well, because I'm triggered because I'm because I get the same way. Once you like, because that's how we started running was the fact that we did our first race, and then we were like, we have to run all the time, and then we started hiking this past year. And I'm putting myself into his shoes because the first year we went hiking out in Utah. And now what are we talking about for a trip? We're going back to Utah to hike again. Like, it just happens. Right. So you go, you go out there. Do you find a job eventually? Like, uh, people are on pins and needles to find out if you're actually going to be productive citizens here. Like, what are we doing here for a job? <laughs> the crazy timing of it is two days before I moved to Colorado, I wake up and just, you know, I don't have a job at that point. So I'm just get packing my, my stuff up. And, and I turn on the television. I said, what's this on? So I remember in 1993, when I was in high school, we had the, the, the van gets driven into the bottom of the World Trade Center and they, they set it off. So September 11, 2001 is two days before I moved to Colorado. I turn on and I see these, after like five minutes, I realized, no, that's today. But two days later, I guess I, I, I moved to Colorado because I was already moving there and I'm in the financial industry. So the financial industry shuts down. I mean, kind of all industries were really, closed up at that point so i moved out there you know middle of september it took me until about i think february 1st to actually start the first job and i will tell you that it was an amazing time (laughs) before i got that job um because i was outdoors every day learning to rock climb kind of building on that experience you know checking out everything hiking and climbing and things like that so it was amazing time uh, yeah, I eventually had to get a job because I don't have a trust fund. Uh, my parents are educators, so you know the money was going to run out. So I, d- I did eventually get a job, but it, it wasn't by choice because I was actually trying to find a, a job that entire time. But it was just everything was just closed down as far as hiring. So it did take a while, but it was an amazing few months of being outside for sure. Staying outside. Now let's go up in the air. <laughs> yeah, you were reading lots of books about the air. It seems like. So what made you get interested in skydiving? triathlon skydiving that I that I do triathlon again for a bunch of years and um so I'm working a lot of hours kind of just the 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 endurance stuff kind of went away just because I was working so many hours it's so hard to train and um I was like I need to find something new to be passionate about and take my mind away from work I need a release in some way and the nice thing about skydiving is you don't have to really train for it you just fall out of the plane I mean, you do train in terms of skydiving, but there's no running. There's no, I mean, you just show up on a Saturday, you, you know, yeah, door right. opens All and you fall out and do whatever you want to do. Yeah. It's not like running or triathlon. So, uh, so I, I had been tandem. So where an instructor is attached to you, uh, years before, cause I wanted to try it out and kind of put it in the back of my head. Cause I was doing triathlon at the time. And, um, I was riding my bike one day. I see this parachutes in the air cause there's the, the airport's not that far from where I live. I was like, man, can I do that? Because there's a big difference in saying, oh, I can skydive versus like saying it and versus like, okay, now put your money where your mouth is. Are you going to jump out of the plane? Can you deploy your parachute? Can you fix everything on the way down? You know, deal with your equipment, pack your parachute, all those kinds of things. And I said, well, let's see. So I signed up for the training course and see if I could skydive and see if I had the ability to keep calm and keep it under control and, and, uh, and, you know, land safely on the ground. And you're obviously doing tandem jumps when you start, right? No. No. So the way it works, you can do a tandem. That's just kind of, people do it, usually do it once, right? They just want to see what it's like. And someone does all the important stuff, like pulling the parachute, landing it. You just kind of just strapped on. So the way it's called advanced free fall AFF, you're jumping by yourself 
uh, and I'll, I'll qualify that, you're not attached to anybody, but the first jump, you'll have two instructors. They have their hands on your harness, your leg strap. So if you fall out of the plane early or screw up, they can, you can get separated from them easily because they're not really attached to you. Their job is to make sure, one, that you're at, at first when you have two instructors, that you pull your parachute and then it opens. But once your parachute goes, it rips you out of their hands and you're on your own. And they're down with walkie talkies at the bottom say, hey, make a right, make a left. You're way too far away. You know, come back to where you're supposed to land. Um, and then as you progress, after you prove, I, I think it's like three jumps of proving that you're you're going to be okay. Then you go down to one instructor holding onto your harness. And then after seven levels or whatever, you could jump on your own. Um, and then, you know, you, you figure it out from there. There's other training involved, but um, yeah, you get your license and your license says you can jump on your own and you're responsible for yourself. How often okay. were you jumping out of airplanes? Every, like, instead of happy hour, you were just jumping out of a plane at night? Well, Rob, are you going to answer that for me? Oh, my gosh. How often do you think? Yeah, oh, my gosh. Wait, were you, like, doing it more than one time a week? Oh, I have a friend who does this. Go ahead. So, so yeah, we, pretty much Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. So yeah. it's not like you don't go and just do one jump. You do, as you become more experienced, you do multiple jumps in a day. So, yeah, that was the new hobby. That's wild. That's what, and, but I'm he got a addicted chicken. to it. Yeah, but is okay. So, what is the high? The anticipation of the jump, the physical, the free fall, the accomplishment when you're That's on question, the ground. Which, what is the draw to? If you had to kind of narrow it down to one piece of the adventure, what would what would you say it oh, was? I don't know if I could draw it down to one piece because that's what keeps okay. you coming back. But I would say at first it's the it was the challenge to see if I could actually do it. And at first you get a t a really high amount of adrenaline. I mean, so much that your hands are shaking. But that kind of dissipates after a while. So it's if that was the only thing you're going after, then you would stop after you know however many jumps to get that huge um, uh, the dump of adrenaline. So that you always will get adrenaline, but it's far lower as it goes. So as you get more experience, if you think when you fall that your, your adrenaline's super high, it doesn't, you actually calm down when you're going there. Your heartbeat will actually go lower as you relax in the air because that craziness becomes your, your, your normal, which okay. seems weird for people who don't jump. Cause you're like, aren't you just freaking out the whole time? And it's like, sometimes if something goes wrong, you might be, you, you're going to get elevated a uh, heartbeat, but if everything's yeah. going right, you actually get into a more relaxed state um, and you're in the moment, which I thought is the most beautiful thing. You know, there's no future. There's no past. You don't care what your 401k is doing or what the stock market's doing. You're totally in the moment. And that's a really special thing. And it took me a long time to realize that things I would choose were all in the moment. I didn't realize I was choosing. I was, that's why I was choosing them at the time. Cause I wasn't consciously choosing it. It's kind of like triathlon. You're in the moment as well. Skydiving even more. So yeah, all those activities, rock climbing and same thing. You're in the moment. And it's, it's, you're just totally zoned in on what you're doing. And that, and that's just, you know, it's certainly an awesome feeling, but yeah, there's, there's accomplishments as well. Like, can I do these maneuvers in the air, you know, wingsuiting? Um, am I flying with someone else in, in conjunction to do certain moves that can be satisfying? Um, it's kind of like being in a, you know, it's like a tribe. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you have a bond with people um, that you maybe ordinarily wouldn't and you're all walks of life and you're coming in and, and you're having a great time. So it's a, it's a, it's a satisfying. And you learn a lot about yourself. You know, what happens when something goes wrong, your parachute malfunctions, are you doing the emergency procedures to save your life? Uh, that involves crying. Yes. There's no, there's no crying in skydiving. You're about to hit the ground. And you're going to die. You get, you yeah. figure it out real quick.
or you won't have to, you won't have to figure it out anymore because you're just going to be on the ground. How prepared do you feel if something were about to go wrong? Do you feel pretty confident when you're, when you're jumping or you said you're in the moment? Did you feel prepared if something were to go wrong in the air? Well, so you're never, you never know when something randomly is going to go wrong with your parachute malfunction or something like that. So what you do is you always practice what they call EPs or emergency procedures. So you're always practicing that before you get in the plane. So there's certain uh, handles you pull to release your main parachute, pull the, the uh, reserve parachute, things like that. So you're always touching, and I'm, I'm touching where these would be if I had my parachute on. Um, so you're always preparing to do it. So you kind of do it without having to think like, oh, which do I pull first or what, how do I do this? So you're always, you're trying to, um, you know, get it in your mind. So your default to, to what to do the right thing when something goes wrong. So you're, you're not, are you ever really prepared? Uh, well, you figure it out when it happens the first time, really. Uh, did you do it right? And did you, did you fix what it needs to do? So it's always a shock when it happens the first time, I guess. But then, you know, if things have happened once or twice, you're kind of like, oh, I know what's going wrong and let's fix it. So. So I know a segue when I see one and I want to use this opportunity. So, so Jason, obviously one of the, the things about your story is something did go wrong. Can you tell uh, us sort of about that day and what happened? And yeah, so it was a jump 327. If we're take, you know, if you're counting at home, uh, I'm coming in for a landing 150 feet off the ground, huge wind comes off the mountains. So usually when you, when you, land a parachute, you try to land into the wind, like a slight wind, let's say like a four or five mile an hour wind that slows you down, gives you a nice little landing. So I'm heading into the wind, parachutes overhead, everything looks great. I'm landing like normal on this on a grass field, like I landed on hundreds of times before. Then all of a sudden, huge gust of wind comes off the mountains at my back. So the opposite way it as, as it was, it was blowing, huge gust hits me and it like picked me up in my harness and just slammed me. So I go from, you know, going the speed that you normally land at to, uh-oh, there's a fence coming up and there's an airplane hangar. And my speed increased greatly from what I was before the gust of wind. So you're kind of disoriented when I get hit so hard because I never got hit. I've gotten hit with wind beat in the back, but not at that speed. It was like a huge gust. So 150 feet is about five seconds before you're going to land with the kind of parachute I had. So it's really not very much time. And as I'm coming in, I'm counting out a second. So you know, the first thing you say, well, why don't you turn away for where the fence is and the, and the airplane hangar? But you can't do that at 150 feet off the ground because what the way a parachute turns is you pull a handle that slightly collapses the side of the parachute. Your parachute dives towards the ground and that's what creates a turn. So if you're at 2000 feet, well, if you lose 150 or 200 feet and then your turn stops and your parachute stabilizes, well, then that's fine. But when you're 150 feet and I tried to turn I would have dove directly into the ground, which meant mm. increased speed. Well, the ground's not going to move, so I probably would have died. So you basically just had to go, okay, I'm not going to turn because I know what's going to happen if I turn. Take a deep breath, and hopefully you land before that fence, but you're not really sure. And I'm like, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So I'm counting down those five seconds, and I'm like, three, I'm like, maybe I'll land before the fence, two, and then I'm one. I'm like, there's no way I'm landing before that fence. Like, I'm um, there's way too much speed on this parachute. I'm ripping through the fence. So I hit the fence. It's like a wire um, kind of cattle fence. So the two top strands hit me here and here, just as soon as I hit it, basically, because I'm going like 30 miles an hour, it just rips and like, wow. boom, it goes tight and then rips. And then 10 feet behind, it's the airplane hangar, which is just a metal, 
a building. And so it's almost instantaneous. I hit the, go through the fence, hit the building, and I black out from the injuries. Um, and uh, so I'm laying on the ground. This is what I found out this months later, but first person on the scene, because there's like a, a tent where they're packing their parachutes, the other skydivers. First guy comes over to me. Lucky he is an EMS guy. He starts talking to me. And, and the first thing apparently I said was, don't call anybody. I'll be okay. Just give me a minute. Now I was destroyed because I hit that building going 30 miles an hour. He knew I was destroyed, but I was blacked out when I said it, but it was almost like an indication that I was fighting. I was just like trying to get up or trying to not physically getting up because that wasn't possible, but like I was already the survival mode had kicked in. Sure, yeah. So they call 911. They flight for life me uh, to the nearest level one trauma center, which is like 50 miles away. There was a short stop at another hospital, but um, sort of for life-saving surgery because I, I hit so hard on my left side. So 10 of my 12 ribs break. They impact my heart so hard. My heart shoots out of where it normally sits called the pericardial sac, ends up on the right side of my chest, all twisted up. I wish the audience could see my eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) They are just like like, so big. They're like that emoji. That's like so big. Okay. Okay. Okay, Go ahead. Your heart is on the other side. Go ahead. Yeah. So get me to level one trauma center directly into life-saving surgery. Doctors later say that not only that doctor, but no doctor at this level one trauma center, which is basically hospitals for the worst of the worst. They take the helicopter rides of bad car accidents. Something bad happens. They fly them there. That no one had ever performed the surgery they performed on my heart before called, it was a pericardial tear is what, what happened, which is like the sack your heart normally sits in. It shoots out of there. So no one had ever performed that surgery on anyone before because they basically said no one ever makes it alive because your heart disconnects, I guess, from whatever important things it disconnects from. So the doctor is just like, tells my family, like, there's no way he should be alive. He should have never made it off the field alive, let alone in the helicopter ride to this hospital, let alone the surgery. Um, besides that, I have 20 broken bones, four organs had to be fixed, like collapsed lungs, spleens lacerated, colon had to be put back in a place. The left femur gets, gets broken. I have a, a, a rod that goes basically from my knee all the way up to my hip for the most part. Um, yeah, pelvis is broken in the front and back broken wrist, broken elbow, dislocated L5 vertebrae fracture. What else am I missing out? 11 broken ribs, concussion. So yeah, long list of injuries. So I'm in a coma for eight days. So they fixed my heart. They don't even close it up. Is it a medically induced coma because you had so much injuries or, okay, okay. So yeah, they don't even close up my chest for three days because they're, if they need to go back in and fix my heart again, they're, they, they don't want to have to cut open all the wiring and all this other stuff. So after three days, they figure, hey, the heart surgery worked. And then multiple surgeries to fix everything else after okay. that. Wait a second. They're just, how, okay, so I have watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. But they hmm, they just left you open? How does that work? What do they, like, tape you up or cover you up? I mean, you were in a, a medically induced coma, so maybe you don't know the answer to that. But So my parents are on the East Coast. So they fly out there as soon as they can. But the first person I see is my emergency contact, my friend Lori. So she gets the call. She freaks out. It's like, you know, she knew, you know, you don't ever think this is actually going to happen. So she shows at the hospital. Later on, she tells me. So she's sitting in in my uh, room and the nurse comes in at some point and says, do you want to see his internal organs? Because apparently they have. (laughs) Is that a HIPAA violation? (laughs) As my friend tells me, medical grade saran wrap on my body because because i have a, a a scar from here top of my chest all the way to my belt line where they opened me up to fix everything so she goes she's like no i do not want to see that uh so i you know i don't know if they put like two wires in to hold it together i, I don't i don't know the answer to that but they, yeah they basically didn't 
didn't completely close me up. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and as 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 my my friend sitting there. So the first day after a surgery, right? I'm in a coma. I'm laying there, and so she's freaked out. She could barely walk to my room. Uh, she has to get her sister to drive her to the hospital. She gets met by the chaplain, and she thinks I died by the time from the time she gets the call to come Chaplain's to the hospital. Right? Wow. And spoiler, spoiler alert, by the way, Jason lives through this. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to ruin the. I don't want to bury the lead. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so she shows up. He, she goes, no, 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 he's not dead. But I need to prepare you for what you're about to see because it's it's horrible what you're about to see. So she's sitting in my room. The doctor comes in who saved me the night before. And he starts staring at me. And as my friend would describe months later, she goes, he was staring at you for such a long time. I started getting getting scared that something was wrong. She goes, finally, I, I built up the courage to say, why are you staring at him? Like, is something about to go wrong? And, and the doctor turns to her and says, I'm staring at him because I can't believe he's alive. I was like, there's no way this guy should live through anything like this. I was like, no one lives through this. And that, so that's, that's, that's kind of starts the the story of, of the, of the comeback. Um, just, yeah. So I start eight days in a coma. Um, I wake up. So I, I open my eyes for the first time after they, you know, whatever they do to get you out of the coma, I guess, cut down on the drugs. So I see the sunlight coming through my room and I open my eyes. So I always have to adjust because it was dark for eight days. And there's somebody many guys standing over me who turns out to be the doctor who saved my life. He's checking on me. He's looking down at me and he goes, he just goes, you're lucky to be alive. Can Did you have any memory it? of what happened? Well, so the memory of the actual what happened up to the crash, I 100% remember. I knew exactly yeah. what happened. And I do remember like after that blacking out, I remember rotor blades when the, I guess when the helicopter was flying me to the hospital. But when I woke up, I didn't know what was wrong with me because I, I pretty much blacked out when I hit the, hit the building. So I looked at myself and I see, I see like bandages down here. I see, mach you know, machines are encircling my bed. Uh, there's like five or six IV bags hanging up. Um, there's tubes coming out of my chest, all draining blood. There's like, I don't know how many there were, more than I could count. I couldn't count that high at that point. I think I had a lot of medication on me. You know, there's casts and you're, and, and the nurse comes in and just like, can you please not move? And I mm -hmm. look at her, I'm just like, that seemed obvious to me, even in my, you know, crazy state. And I'm just, I, I couldn't even feel my body. I was completely numb. Um, and I'm like, okay, I won't move. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the crazy wake up story. Um, and then there's 10 weeks where I can't move because I can't put any weight on my legs because you know every, they're scared of the pelvis, obviously broken in the front and back. There's all kind of metal in the pelvis and the broken leg. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you have the chest wired shut and all that. So you can't, can't move for 10 weeks. But for 10 weeks though, you're, you're now awake. Like, you know, that you're like, you've, you've come out of this coma and now yeah. you're just knowing that you're stationary. You're not moving. Which for somebody yeah. like you, who's a thrill seeker, that must have been really hard to be like, I mean, listen, not that maybe you could have run a triathlon right then, but, you know, that must have been really hard for you to kind of just sit there. Yeah. I'd say the hardest part of my life was laying there, but it was the biggest blessing there was. Here's why. Because I, I mean, besides work, so I was working way too many hours before that accident, right? I wasn't really happy. It was 12 to 14 hours a day, project to project. And, and skydiving was really an escape. Uh, so I didn't have, the, the being in the moment was not having to think of the work and the stress and everything else was going on. So I really wasn't happy going, going into that. 
and, I, and even before that, I was living life at 100 miles an hour. I don't, I, I'm in terms of like whether it was skydiving, climbing, and, and doing all those things, I was in the moment guy, it was just one thing after another after another. I didn't spend enough time with people that I cared about because it was always the next task and the next thing I was trying to do. So laying in that bed took away, well, I say it take, took away the defense mechanisms of, of avoidance of out there running and getting endurance high or skydiving and not having to think of things. It made me lay there and think of everything in life. So I, I would say I never thought of anything positive that happened because I had a lot of great things that happened in my life, but I never thought about any of that. I always thought about all the things that I didn't do right. You know, that I didn't tell friends and family that I love them enough. I didn't spend enough time with them. And I was sidetracked with all that work and other things, just getting through life. And you you sort of put other things on the back burner that you should have never done. And when you're laying there and you, all you can do is think about those things you wish you had done, you start reassessing your life and you go, man, I just got a second chance at life. I shouldn't be alive. And like, what do you do with this? Well, you, you try to get better at those weaknesses. It, it's like thing I was most proud of was like, I could get through anything in life with effort and getting through things, whether it was some crazy mountain adventure or skydiving or, or whatever else. But there is a dark side to that same personality trait that I thought so highly of before. The dark side is you're always moving at hundred hours an hour. You can get all these through these things in life, but you missed out on all these other things in life because you were so obsessed with getting through these other things that you missed out. So I thought about all that dark side of those things and how you have to control. There's a good part of that, of, of getting through anything, but then there's the bad part that you, that you missed out. And you go, well, how do I change that going forward? So that 10 weeks, so I would say the emotional downside was far harder than the physical uh, challenges. Now the physical challenges were awful. I mean, I was screaming in pain, it was horrible, but the emotional was harder than that. But let me now. So we did the physical side, which is great. I mean, that's that's the awesome side. So, um, just kind of go full circle on this whole journey. What about the mental side? Like, what 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 were the things? Because obviously, you've this is trauma. Yes, a whole whole trauma situation. But you said you came away from it now a different different person, which kind of inspired you to write your book and such. What was what were some of the life lessons? Or I mean, you, you almost bit it. So what happened? Like, what did you, what did you, <laughs> I, mean, oh, I don't know. Geez. Well, what, what, what did you, what are you taking away from this? Like, what, what, what do you share with others when you're in your speaking engagements that you do? Cause you, you do this now on the road and take your story elsewhere. Yep. But what, what do you, what do you, what did you learn? Cause I'm kind of curious because you mentioned yourself, you had to spend a lot of time. Jason had to spend a lot of time with Jason. So what did you, what did you change about yourself? Cause I you started it, running. Like, yeah, I mean, you, went, you obviously went right back to what you were doing. So I'm hoping the mental side of things, you grew some. I would say the way I would process things, for instance, like before the accident, right? Go for a long run. I'm triathlon training, something like that. I'm thinking about people that I care about, right? And I'm almost like processing myself and not ever communicating that to the person. So I realized when I woke up, I was like, you know, a lot of people, not saying I didn't ever say I love you, just, you know, people are important, but I was like, I, I kept it to myself. I'm just like expressing yourself to those people you care about is tremendously important. I could have died and they wouldn't have known exactly how I felt about them or maybe not enough and had to wonder. And it's expressing also the vulnerable side of yourself. It was always in terms of, you know, growing up, it's like, you know, you need to, you need to get through things and you don't complain about, about whatever you're going through. You just get through it and learning to 
be comfortable with expressing how you feel about things, things you struggle with, because the reality is you help other people when you're willing to be vulnerable about yourself with other people. It opens up a connection to them that they'll share with you something they're not feeling great about. And I learned that in the hospital because when I was laying in that bed for those 10 weeks, so every time someone came into my room that was new, they would see my medical chart and they you know, be, wanna hear the story. And what I realized as, as time went on, that every time I shared that story, they would share something about themselves that kind of opened up the trust factor that they might not have necessarily had because I was willing to be vulnerable with about the things I struggle with first. And I was just like, there's something to that that I need to take advantage of because it was like, you find new purpose because I felt like I was working too many hours and I lost purpose in life. And I was just, it kind of dawned on me. I was like, wait a minute, this might be the purpose that I was, I'm supposed to learn out of this, that maybe I have to go through the toughest thing in my own life and come back from it before I ever could help someone else going through the toughest thing or very tough thing in their own life. I've written a book about your experience. I would say you are a motivational, inspirational speaker. Is this what you're doing professionally now? And also, do you think being able to share your story with so many folks and be vulnerable as part of your personal healing process from your experience. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's certainly part of a, a healing process myself to, to talk about it. So kind of COVID happened and I started speaking right after kind of COVID started opening up. So I've been doing it for, you know, 15, 16 months of, of actually speaking in, in, in public on this um, and book signings and, and um, you know, things like that where I share it. And, and then, I'll, you know, also, people that are, that I know are just people, um, have refer friends to me that are going through, you know, surgeries and things like that, that uh, I'm lucky to, to, to be able to, um, come my way to, to kind of help them and counsel them through the, what they're going through. And you meet amazing things, people at book signings, when you talk about your story and they, like, like I said, put it out there that are vulnerable and you, and these amazing people start pouring out their stories. And I just met a person, uh, two weeks ago that was just about to start, um, cancer chemo the the following monday and she didn't even know i was there she just showed up at the bookstore and started talking to me and um you know another person that was grieving their parents death and we had a long conversation about what they were going through and um the gift to me was the story because it's a way to to connect to people and then it goes far deeper than just the story it's like the shock value of the skydiving accident i realize pulls people in but then you realize there's far more to it than the skydiving accident because it wasn't just like i just hit there was an evolution of, of me as a person and in what you go through and sharing that part of it is really the most important part of the story not the skydiving portion yeah that the physical part was it, it was what it was but there was so much more that came from that the hundred million dollar question are you able to skydive again and do you want to? Do would you, you want, yeah, would you want to? Well, you know, so when I was laying in that bed, not able to move, my family was like, can you please not skydive again? <laughs> they were they were nervous beforehand, but like, I can't imagine what, what even worse that would feel. They were like, oh, Jesus is going skydiving today. Like, is he going to smash into another building? So there's a lot of other challenges in life. And that, that was a part of my life. That wasn't my whole life. And it's a, you know, I like to say it's a period of my life. Do I ever hear that plane flying overhead and go, man, I w wish it was in that, that sometimes I, I, yes. We are so glad that you've recovered and you are in great spirits and on a personal level as a mom, myself, a very young 
very young boys, but I just hope that you continue to take care of yourself and your mental health um, because what you went through was quite an ordeal. But tell folks where they can find more information out about your story and your book. We don't want to lose the opportunity to, to share about where people can learn more. So my website's jasondenon.com, spelled D-E-N-N-E-N. Instagram, uh, just J-W-D, Boulder, not spelled like the city, B-O-U-L-D-E-R. You can can get my book on my website. If you get it on my website, I'm happy to sign it. Personal message to you, my signature. You also get it on Amazon. You also get barnesandnoble.com. And then also one of the things coming up, I also speak, obviously, you can contact me for that. I have a holiday coming up. It's called Coming Back to Life Day, where I celebrate the day that I uh, almost passed away and, and lived. So this year, when I, I celebrate every year by doing something, one of the doctors said I wouldn't be able to do. So this year is the first year I'm back doing technical climbing. So Mount Ypsilon in Rocky Mountain National Park, there's an ice couloir called the Y Couloir that um, it'll be, you know, it'll be the first time going back technical climbing with crampons, ice axes, all those things. So that's the goal this year to uh, to stand on top of that peak on uh, coming back to life day and celebrating another another year of being alive and, and surviving and thriving afterwards. So, wow. Well, we celebrate you and we what? will be there climbing only in spirit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, how about, I'll think about you on the summit. How about okay, that? that'd be great. That'd be great. (laughs) Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your very vulnerable story. I think there's purpose to that. And we're so proud to have an alum like you representing us in Colorado. Thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Well, I can can say after that, that you're probably never going to let your two kids, Leo and Noah, out of the house. Like you, as a mom, you're never gonna it's, like if they ever want to go. I gotta tell you, it's hard to send kids to school when you're a parent. It's it's hard to let them out of your sight. You God gotta, forbid you have they, to. Though. I know, but God forbid they want to go up in the air or I go know. climb. Or, you're not gonna let them do Leo anything. Leo will absolutely not want to do that. Noah, he might do it now if we allow. <laughs> he's he's quite he's quite you, interesting. You, you're gonna say to Brian, where is he? Oh, he's on the Rockies. <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. great. But Rob, you know, actually, it's funny that I thought about you a lot as we were wrapping up this oh. conversation with Jason because he talked a lot about little known fact. I've known Rob for how long have we known each other? I was in. Oh, gosh, we've been, I don't know, 15, 20 years, it's, it's maybe. It's up there now, yeah. So uh, it took me like tw- almost 15 years to know a lot about Rob's personal life. So yeah. Rob is a, a a great person that, unlike Jason said, you're you're not vulnerable. Wait. You don't share, but people share. Oh, I was going to say, did he say I wasn't nice and <laughs> I missed it in the interview? No. Oh. But you don't, you're not, uh, you don't share a lot about your personal life to others. Yes, Yet, what the interesting piece about you is everybody comes to you and tells you things. How does that work? Well, it's the doctor side that I disclosed in the interview. <laughs> no, no, I don't know what how, how I don't know what it is. It's just how how I'm wired. I know. It's just who I am. There's something about you that people feel comfortable with, yet you we know nothing of of you. I know. I did hear myself a little bit in his story in yeah. the fact that you're doing 100 miles an hour and I my mom keeps telling me you got to slow down. You got to I I get it. I get it. But okay, that's just well, kind of what I do. Well, well, you know what? Maybe this is a good learning opportunity for for you, for all of us to kind of slow down, take it easy, don't miss things, and don't miss the opportunity to tell people that you're grateful for them or that you love them or I love you, Rob Life. Oh, we love you right back there, <laughs> Jessica Rose. Have a great day, folks.
You've been listening to Beyond the Brown and Gold on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. You can find more episodes on your favorite podcasting platforms by searching for Beyond the Brown and Gold or Rowan Radio On Demand. 